Thank you for that new song this morning, David. That's a good one. Fits right in with our passage this morning in Colossians chapter 3. And so I invite you, if you have a copy of God's Word, to open up to Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11 in just a few minutes. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm getting really, really tired of this coronavirus. Anybody else with me right now? Anybody? Okay, yeah. Crazy because every time we start to think that it's getting a little bit better, things are getting a little bit better, all of a sudden things go crazy again. So we've had, uh, I think the uh, uh, our local chairman of the board of education are told us as parents this week that this has been one of the worst weeks in the schools. Not not terrible, but but a challenge. We've had. Uh, one of our local schools greatly impacted by this. Uh, we've had a, a sister church that's had some challenges this week with it. Our president now has coronavirus. We have uh, two football games and four football teams this week in the NFL that have been impacted by coronavirus. It just, it just, it's just crazy. It's like it's coming from all kinds of different directions. So thank you guys for continuing to uh, be faithful to church in the midst of these challenges and being faithful to wear a mask as you come in and as you leave and wearing masks to your Sunday school classes today. And, you know, I, I, I don't know there's anything we can do to absolutely pre- prevent uh, getting the virus, but there are a lot of things we can do to try to mitigate the spread of it. So thank you very much for doing that and for being so faithful. And speaking of faithfulness, I want to commend you as a church for your faithfulness, not only in, in attending worship during this time, whether that's been in person or online, but also for your faithfulness in giving financially throughout this challenge. Um, I mentioned it Wednesday in my Facebook Live, but uh, Steve Perko had given me a, a, a financial update uh, Wednesday that as of the end of September, and I hope I'm right with this, Steve, that we're at 98% of what we had pledged for the harvest offering. Um, So you guys have been faithful to continue to give to the harvest offering. We're about to enter into another harvest offering pledge time in the 1st of November. So we'll be sending out some some letters and information and ask you to begin to pray for our harvest offering for next year. Um, we're at like 94% of what was our original goal and 98% of what was our actual pledges, and we've still got a month to go. So you guys have been faithful with that. Uh, giving year-to-date to the general budget is at 97% of where it was this time last year in 2019. So you guys have continued to be faithful in giving, even though for some of our people that's meant learning to use the computer to give or having to make an extra trip to the church office or putting it in the mail. Um, still our people have continued to be faithful to that. So thank you very much, um, Central Park. Uh, You've proven yourself to be good and faithful servants throughout this time. Um, We still need your help as we continue to try to do things. We we really felt like we had a a unique opportunity uh, this, uh, this particular time of the year, and our plans are still at this time to go forward with uh, our trunk or treat. Uh, Michael Gentry, our interim preschool and children's minister, has put together a team of volunteers who've helped to plan this event. I think we've got 15 or 16 people that have volunteered to uh, put to, put up a car and decorate it and have a drive-through for, for children and families to come through. We, 
we made a Facebook event post and within about four or five hours of posting that and church members reposting it, we had at least 60 people that said they were coming and almost 200 that said they were interested within six hours. Um, so we, we have not even started doing mass advertising and marketing, just, just that alone. Uh, and there's a lot of parents that are looking for, for opportunities for their children right now. And so I think we're get, we have an opportunity to minister to some children and families during this time and introduce them to Central Park and maybe one day hopefully to introduce them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that being said, we need your help. We need your help specifically with candy. Um, uh, if, if we are, we have no idea what to expect as we plan this event, but our, our thought is we could have as many as 500 children come through, um, depending upon uh, what this, there's not a lot of other things going on that night. And, um, and, and we want to make sure that, that if, if we do an event that a, that a kid leaves with more than about 10 pieces of candy in his bag. You know what I'm talking about? We want them to have a, a lot of candy. And we got 15, 16, 17 stations. And so uh, we estimate we're going to need about 50,000 pieces of candy when it's all said and done. And, uh, and you guys have already stepped up in the last couple of weeks and brought about five to six, 7,000 pieces. But we're going to need more. We have budget money that we're going to be able to purchase some candy, but certainly if you guys want to donate some, there's still time to do that for the next couple of weeks. Please do that. We also have invite cards that are available for you to take and give to your, your children, your grandchildren, your neighbors um, to invite them to come. Obviously, we know people are real sensitive about receiving stuff from people right now, but they'll, they'll take things from a friend. And so we have some really neat invite cards that give information about that, and they are available in the tables in the foyer as well as at the offering boxes. And so if you want to grab 5, 6, 8, 10, whatever's best for you, and take those and hand those out, we would, we would encourage you to do that as well. Um, and then lastly, um, before we get to our message this morning, to, this is uh, the time that we normally do deacon nominations. We're actually a few weeks behind on that. <clears throat> and we, <clears throat> excuse me, we normally <clears throat> receive those nominations in September. Um, but today we extended that this year to the 1st of October. Many of you received a letter with a deacon ballot in it already, but if you did not, there are nomination ballots that are available in the foyer as well as outside of my office uh, down there. And uh, you can fill out one of those and drop those in, and this will be the last Sunday that we receive those. You can also email those. If you didn't have a chance to send those in, you can email those to Ken Bush. Uh, or myself, or Whitley, we'll make sure it gets added to the count, but uh, you can do that, and we'll, we'll add your nominations to it as well. Um, and just pray about what the Lord would have you as far as nominating deacons. I'd remind you of what God's Word says when we nominate deacons. We don't nominate deacons on the basis of popularity. Uh, we nominate them on the basis of God's Word. And uh, 1 Timothy 3 says that deacons are to be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine. Not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold to the mystery of the faith, the gospel, with a clear conscience. They should be tested and, and let them serve as deacons if they have proven themselves to be blameless. Their wives must be dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, faithful in all things. A deacon is to be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. And so as you pray about who the Lord would have you to serve, keep those in mind. All right, Colossians chapter 3. If, uh, today we're going to continue uh, 
kind of a three-part message that I began last week as we begin to look at Paul's practical application of the gospel in the lives of believers, in the lives of those in the church at Colossae and also in your life and my life today. And today we're going to look at the topic of the Christian or the believer's spiritual divorce. Now that seems like a little interesting topic there, but I want us to understand today from God's Word that the power of the gospel that has redeemed us and saved us now calls us to make a deliberate and definitive break with our past sinful lives. We are called to divorce ourselves as followers of Christ with everything that once defined you and me in our sinful past. And last week I talked about the tension that exists for many of us in the Christian life where oftentimes Christians will feel like they're being pulled between two poles. On one hand, we have the glorious truth of our salvation in Jesus Christ, our gratitude for the grace of God. But on the other hand, in our practical lives, many of us struggle with the gospel. We, we trip over the same sins over and over and over again. We struggle with the same insecurities. We doubt many times whether or not you and I will actually have genuine spiritual victory because while we know some things to be fundamentally true spiritually, in our everyday practice of our life, it seems like we keep on tripping over the same stuff that, 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 that draws us back into our sinful flesh or defeats us and discourages us. Have you ever found, figured out how hard it is to break a bad habit? Anybody know what I'm talking about? You ever had a time when you engaged in a practice that you knew fundamentally was not good for you, but you still kept doing it? And no matter how, how hard you tried, willpower alone wasn't enough? We all do. One of my bad habits is, is snacking at night, right? Right? I just, I, I, even ever since I was in college, it would be very common for me to go to the refrigerator and make a sandwich or heat up something to eat or grab another little piece of pie or cake or whatever. And, and it's one of my terrible habits. And no matter how much I fundamentally know that it's not good for me to eat late at night, it's not good for me to eat past a certain point at night. And though I really recognize the fact that I'm not really hungry, I'm just, I just have a habit of eating stuff. It's a bad habit, and it's a terrible habit to break. Bad habits are hard to break, but especially in the spiritual realm of our lives. And while certain physical habits may be, may be not the best for us, bad spiritual habits can be spiritually deadly. We introduced also last week this foundational truth that we need to remember, which is that there is a continual gravitational pull within our human flesh away from God's truth and away from the image of Jesus Christ. You see, just because we have the consequences of our sinful choices forgiven doesn't mean that the rest of our lives will be free from the struggle of the flesh and the allure of sin and past sinful decisions. I think you've probably realized this in life that just because you got saved didn't mean that you were never tempted to sin again. As a matter of fact, Paul says, I, I wouldn't even really know what sin was if it wasn't for the law. The more I understand God's truth, the more I recognize that, that temptation is even a greater reality now than it was when I was not a Christian. 
Because when I wasn't a Christian, I was just doing things that were natural in my, in my humanity and I didn't even recognize them to be temptations to sin. But now it seems like I'm, I'm tempted all the time. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7 when he says, what a, what, a, what, a, what a desperate man that I am. Who can save me from this body of sin? All the things I want to do, I don't do. And all the things I don't want to do, those are the things I keep doing. And that was the Apostle Paul. And that's because there's this continual gravitational pull in our flesh away from the truth of God and away from the image of Jesus. We said last week that where you choose to set your heart in life determines both the quality and the direction of your life. Just as belief determines behavior, focus in life determines our direction. And for this reason, Paul began chapter 3 not from a standpoint of issuing commands for obedience, but he starts by giving us a very empowering picture of our eternal standing in Jesus Christ. And now he begins to take us from positional righteousness in Christ to practical righteousness in our lives. And he does so by reminding us to set our hearts and our minds on things that are above. And now this morning we're going to move from our eternal standing in Christ to our daily battle against the flesh. And we're going to see how God's Word calls us to make a definitive break every day from our past life of sin. So with that in mind, I invite you to read with me verses 5 through 11 of Colossians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 3. Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now... You must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, See that, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, and this is in the church, here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, Christ is all and in all. Now, if you want to take notes this morning, there's a worship guide in the, in the seat backs in front of you. And, and I want to share with you four truths this morning I see from this word about our, our divorce, our spiritual divorce in the Christian life. And the first thing I want you to see is the grounds for our separation. In any divorce, there are usually grounds for separation. And the grounds for our separation were actually given to us last week in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. The grounds for our separation from our past is the truth that Paul writes, You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This short statement is a powerful encapsulation of the total spiritual transformation that takes place in the lives of Christians at the cross of Jesus Christ. And for the believer, Paul wants us to know that we have had a change in the defining spiritual reality of our lives. We talked about this last week, that we have a new reigning reality. What once defined us no longer does, and what defines us now is our union with Jesus Christ. In our new reigning reality, we told you last week, is simply this. One, you have died with Christ. 
That's the first part of your reigning reality spiritually. You've died with Him. Romans 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved with sin. Our old self, our old sinful nature was crucified at the cross with Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 12-14 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions and do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who've been brought from death to life and as your members as instruments of righteousness. And then Paul says in verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you anymore. You've died to sin. You have died with Christ. When you placed your faith in Christ, the old you, the old sinful self, died on the cross with Christ. But the other part of our reigning reality is that you have been raised with Christ. You died with Him and you've been raised with Him. Romans 6, 4 says, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When we placed our faith in Jesus, the death that He died to sin, we died with Him. And the resurrection that brought Him back to life has now given us new life. And for this reason, Paul says, our lives now as Christians are hidden with Christ in God. This new spiritual reality becomes the grounds for our complete and total separation with our past sinful lives. Both Colossians chapter 3 and Romans chapter 6 provide us with a glorious truth that I think too often many Christians fail to understand, and that truth is in your notes. Through Christ's death, the power of sin has been broken. And through Christ's resurrection, the power to obey is now ours. Through Jesus' death and our union with Him, Christ broke the power of sin over us. Sin no longer has dominion over us, Paul said in Romans chapter 6. He, it no longer is our master. It is no longer the one who owns us. And through His resurrection, the power to obey Jesus is now ours. This is why Paul tells us that we are to, we are to make a break, that, that for the believer, there, we're not to be like we once were. Sin once had dominion and power over us when we were lost. The sinner sins because it's embedded in his nature to pursue that which God says is not best for him. The lost person has an unregenerate nature that is bent towards sin. But it gets worse. The more we sin, the more power we give to sin in our lives. You, you know this. You've understood this. The more you sin, the more power sin has over you. The more you sin, the more you desire to sin more. And sin creates within our lives a continual cycle of more sin. But through the death of Jesus Christ, the power of sin has been broken. We died to sin. And as Christians, we don't have to believe the lie that we can't help it when we sin. We don't have to think that we are helpless to defeat sin in our lives because the, the power has been broken and the power to obey is now ours. Now we know that we are still works in progress. We are not yet what we will be. And sin, for many of us, still has, has an allure over us. But it does not have 
mastery over us, right? No matter how much I tell myself that gluttony is a sin, no matter how much I tell myself that, that overfeeding my body is a destruction of the temple that God has given me, sometimes I just want another piece of pepperoni pizza. You know what I'm talking about? And while sin does not have mastery over me, it still has an allurement. But the Spirit of God inside of us gives us power to resist temptation and to say no to sin. And so because we are new creatures in Christ, we are to make a complete divorce between our new lives in Jesus and the people that we were before we met Him. Which brings us to the second truth, which is the gravity of our situation the gravity of our situation. We see the grounds for our separation, but in verses 5-8, through eight, we see the gravity of our situation. Notice the violent language that Paul uses in verse 5. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. This word death is the word necros, and it literally means to kill the deeds of the flesh. The theological word for this is called mortification. We mortify the flesh and it involves the, the Christian continually seeking in our lives to destroy the temptations of the flesh in our body. And if you think about it, what Paul says here is really shocking language. It's violent imagery. Paul does not say to you and me that we should, pry, that we should try to suppress the evil deeds of our flesh through exerting personal willpower. He doesn't say, just think harder and suppress your sinful desires. He's not saying we should try to control the deeds of our flesh through better behavior management. Paul is saying that we should kill the deeds of the flesh. It's the equivalent spiritually of taking a 45 caliber bullet and putting it into our sinful flesh. And I don't think many of us as Christians have seriously thought about Paul's instructions in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. I don't think many of us have grasped the seriousness of Paul's imperative commands. And the reason for this is the, re the way that we talk about sin in the church. Too often in the church, when we talk about sin, we talk about sexual sin or greed or impurity or lust. We talk about it, we don't talk about it as though it were sin, we talk about it as though it were a mistake. Or a lapse in judgment. Or the error of our ways. And many times when someone in the church is caught in sin, we don't call them to confession, we don't call them to, to repentance, instead we pat them on the back and we encourage them to try to do better. Paul says, put to death the deeds of the flesh. And he says this because we must understand that battling sin is a deadly, serious matter in the Christian life. Battling sin is deadly serious. Every once in a while, you and I will hear a tragic story about someone who owns an exotic pet that suddenly breaks out of its confines and kills or mauls them or someone else. And every time we hear it, we shake our heads because the fallacy that is often made is that we can take something that has a nature to kill and maul and live under the illusion that we can somehow suppress its nature or control it. 
And then one day when it breaks out from its confinement, it causes someone harm or death. And tragically, many people find out the hard way that nature cannot be suppressed. For the Christian, the sinful nature cannot be suppressed. It cannot be tamed. It cannot be improved. It must be mortified. It must be killed. And we must be serious when it comes to denying the gratifications of the sinful flesh. I put in your notes here some wrong ways that we tend to deal with sin in our lives. The first of those is we tend to minimize it. We tend to minimize it. And what we mean is we say, well, it's, it's not that big of a deal. You ever said that before? When you did something you knew was wrong? Well, it's not that big of a deal. It's not like I killed someone, right? We try to minimize sin. We try to put sin on some kind of scale spiritually where we say, well, here's the really, really, really bad sins and, and here's the sins that are, eh, I mean, they're sin, but not that big a deal. Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Refined Sins where he talks about sins in the church that oftentimes we overlook and minimize. But we need to understand that God doesn't grade on that scale. Sin is sin. Certainly sin has different levels of consequence, but all sin is sin, and we cannot minimize it. Another way that we try to deal with it is we try to reclassify it. And by that we mean, well, I wouldn't really call that a sin, right? I talked about one a second ago. It's, it's, it's really one that's hard for me, gluttony, right? I mean, we get done with Thanksgiving, and we, we look like the turkey that was, that was stuffed before it was put into the oven, and then we say, well, I wouldn't really call gluttony a sin, right? The Bible calls it a sin. Well, I, I wouldn't really call speeding a sin. Oh, really? So you don't think that Romans chapter 13 that says obey all your governing authorities applies necessarily to you when you're out on the road, right? We reclassify it. Or we ignore it. Ignore it is where we say, it's, it's no big deal, I, I've got it under control. You ever heard somebody say that before? It's no big deal. I mean, I've got it under control. I can stop anytime I want to. Like, like I, I understand it's not what I need to do, but, but, but I got it under control. Or we excuse it. Excuse it is when we say, well, I know it's not right, but... Whenever we add that but to it, we end up going down a track that the Holy Spirit never intends for us to do. We just kind of excuse sin. I, I know I shouldn't have done it, but. Or, as part of excusing it, sometimes we just try to shift it. We try to shift the blame for it. We say, it's not my fault. If, if you knew what that person did to me, if you knew what, what circumstances I grew up in, if you knew the house that I was raised in, you'd understand. We try to shift the blame. But we cannot minimize sin. We cannot reclassify sin. We cannot ignore it or excuse it or shift it. The Bible says that we are to kill it. We're to kill it. We're to starve it out. We're to, we're to, we're to take away any power that it has by absolutely removing it from our lives. Paul says, put to death whatever is earthly 
in you. It's a reference to the natural temptations of the flesh. And he gives many of those. I can't do an exhaustive exposition of this. He talks about sexual immorality, which is very simply any kind of sex outside of God's boundaries of one man, one woman united in a covenant of marriage for life. Anything other than sex within a united covenant of one man, one woman under the covenant of God is sexual immorality. I don't care what our world says. And we need to recapture in the church that sexuality is a good gift given to us by a good and loving Heavenly Father, but He gave us boundaries in that gift to be enjoyed. And we need to understand that we can't find entertainment in the sexual smut of our culture because it hurts our witness and impacts negatively the sexual practices of many people in the church. We need to flee sexual immorality. He talks about impurity, which is just a moral corruption of the mind. He talks about passion, which is unbridled lust. He talks about covetousness, which is an insatiable desire for something you don't have that someone else does. Later on, he talks about anger and wrath and malice, which is an attitude that is bent on doing other people harm, especially with our speech. He talks about slander, which is defamatory speech directed towards other people. And then he talks about obscene talk. Many of us would see, say that, that that's just cursing, but I think it involves a, a lot of different things, and I think one of those is gossip. And Paul's point in all of these is that you and I are in a daily battle with these elements, and we are to destroy them because there is no room for these in the lives of spiritually transformed people. It's an extreme gravity to our situation. But then I want us to see the grace of this battle, the grace which fuels our fight with the flesh. Two verses that Paul gives us tells us about the victory that we can have over the evil deeds of the flesh. One of these is verse 7, which says, In these practices you once too walked when you were living in them. In other words, these sinful practices may have been true of you once, but they are not true anymore. They are what you once walked But you don't live on that street anymore. You don't live at that spiritual address. You have moved. You have changed spiritual position in Christ. You once walked that way, but you don't have to walk that way anymore. And then in verse 9, he says that we are to not lie to one another. Why? Because we have put off the old self with its practices and we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and image of its Creator. Your old self is the unregenerate man born with a sinful nature, acting out the impulses of your flesh with little to no regard for God, His Word, or consequences of your actions. But that's your old self. You and Christ are now a new man. You have a new nature. You are a regenerated man or a regenerated woman with a heart for God, a conviction of sin and a desire to honor Him with your life and your actions. And these two statements remind us that resisting sin in our lives is not empowered by giving us a list of rules to obey. Resisting sin in our lives is empowered by the transformational grace of God. He helps us to see that what empowers real obedience and holiness is not rules, but grace. So I put in your notes, battling sin is a matter of grace-driven effort and not personal willpower. 
You don't have it within you naturally to resist sin. If you did, you would never need a Savior. So it's not a matter of personal willpower. It's a matter of personal effort that is driven by the grace of God. D.A. Carson wrote in a book years ago about this idea of of grace-driven effort. He said, One of the most striking evidences of sinful human nature lies in the universal propensity for all people for downward drift. The drift is invariably towards compromise, comfort, indiscipline, sliding disobedience, and decay that advances sometimes at a crawl and sometimes at a gallop across generations. And then D.A. Carson says, people, listen carefully, this is transformational. People do not drift towards holiness. Remember what I said earlier, there is a continual gravitational pull in our lives away from God's truth and away from the image of Jesus. That's what D.A. Carson is saying here. People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, and obedience to Scripture or faith and delight in God's Word. Instead, we drift towards compromise and we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and we call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and we call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godliness, godlessness and convince ourselves that we have actually been liberated. This idea of grace-driven effort is reminding ourselves not just of our obligation towards right behavior, but reminding ourselves of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus and how the grace of God that has saved us also empowers us in love to fight sin in our lives. Reminding ourselves of what Christians do and don't do can sometimes lead to a cycle of frustration, but reminding ourselves of what Christ has done empowers us to fight sin and to be more of what He calls us to be. And then lastly, I want us to see what I would call the glorious unity of the gospel. It's interesting because here in the midst of verses 5 through 11, Paul gives this really detailed explanation of how you and I are to put to death the deeds of the sinful flesh. He lists out what those are. He tells us that we've had a change in our spiritual address, that we've taken off the old self and we've put on the new self. And and in the midst of all this instruction about how we're to divorce ourselves from our sinful past, he makes this statement in verse 11 here. There is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. It's almost as though that verse seems out of place in the midst of verses 5 through 17, which we're going to look at the rest of next week, where we put to death the deeds of the flesh and we put on our, the deeds of, or the, 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 the attitudes of the Spirit. And yet in the midst of that, he's given us a statement about there not being Greek or Jew or circumcised or uncircumcised. What does this mean? He's showing us that the transforming grace of God not only brings about spiritual transformation in our personal lives, but it unites all of God's people together in one spiritual body before God. That this transformational grace which has changed us has not only changed us, it's changed others in this room. And that's the reason why we gather together on Sunday morning is because 
You can't fight the battle of sin by yourself. You need the church to fight the battle of sin. It's why, it's why it's been so discouraging over the last several months when everything we've known on Sundays has been disrupted. And where even when we come to church, it still doesn't feel quite like it did because we're socially distanced and we're putting on masks and we can't encourage one another. And Until today, we haven't been able to have Bible study classes for most of our people. The here that Paul mentions is the church, and he is saying that in the church we are no longer defined by human constructs that divide and segregate us. We are no longer Jews and Gentiles. We're no longer black Christians and white Christians. We're no longer wealthy Christians and poor Christians. We are not Republican Christians and Democratic Christians. We are the body of Christ. And the gospel that empowers us to no longer see in the church what divides us, but what unites us. And what unites us is the blood of Jesus Christ. What unites us is that we all have the same spirit. What unites us is that all of us need the same gospel message and all of us are transformed by the same grace. And this is a critical truth for us as believers to know and model in our day because we live in a time and a culture that is as fractured and divided as it has ever been. And as Christians today, we are too prone to look at our surroundings through temporal, earthly eyes. This is why we go back to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. Set your mind on things that are above. Set your, set your focus on where Christ is. Set your focus on eternal realities, not on things of the earth. And that includes our political alliances. We are too prone today to look at our surroundings simply through earthly eyes. And then we do, we see ourselves primarily by social, racial, political, or sexual constructs. And we tend to focus on areas where we disagree with others and things that divide us. But in the church, it's not to be that way. The nature of the gospel is always unity, not division. And the gospel rightly held by believers will lead us to lay aside our rights to be right all the time and to build the church and not our own personal kingdoms. And there's another important reason why this is embedded in this passage to mortify our sinful nature. It's because Paul wants us to see the role of the church in the battle of our flesh. To understand that the book of Colossians was written to a church, not to an individual. And the call to put to death the deeds of the flesh is a call, it's a corporate call for the church to pursue. I put this in your notes. Denying sin is both a personal battle and a corporate war. It's both. It's both a personal battle in our everyday life and it's a corporate war within the body of Christ. And this is why we need one another in the church. We need safe spaces. We need safe spaces where we can safely confess the sins and temptations of our heart. Let me ask you a really personal question. I know that you fight sin because you're still a human being in a sinful flesh. But do you have another Christian, preferably outside of your spouse? Do you have another Christian to whom you can confess sin and you feel free to confess to them anything that you are battling in life and know that that person will pray for you and encourage you 
and lead you to confess and repent, not just pat you on the back and say, it's okay. They're not going to minimize it, reclassify it, ignore it. Do you have a person like that in your life? Because the scripture says, confess your sins to one another that you may receive healing. We need safe spaces where we can confess our sins to other believers. We need to practice this discipline of confession before God and also personally to those that God has placed in our lives because Satan knows that one way that sin can continually defeat us in our lives is to keep sin in the dark, to keep it hidden. But once sin is exposed through personal confession, that power is broken and that burden is shared by others. Now that doesn't mean that you need to go into your Sunday school class in just a second and stand up in front of all your Sunday school class and confess all your sins to your entire class. But it does mean that we need to have spaces in our life in the church that is safe to be vulnerable and honest about our struggles in the flesh. You see, it's not just me. And it's not just you that needs to put off the old self and put on the new self today. It's all of us. And that none of us stand here today sinless. None of us stand here today without sin and without a need to repent. Breaking bad habits is hard, but when it comes to our spiritual lives, it's not just a matter of overcoming bad habits. It's a matter of dying to sin. It's not just that you and I need a spiritual improvement plan. It's that you and I need a whole new spiritual heart. And the truth of the gospel is you cannot die to sin until you first receive the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. You can't die to sin until you first trust in Jesus. And so if you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, you've never truly repented of your sin and by faith trusted in what Jesus has done for you today, I want to invite you to do that. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And The invitation today is really twofold. Number one, if you're here today and the Holy Spirit has revealed to you your need for Jesus, the Holy Spirit has revealed to you that the reason why you can't break habits of sin is because you don't have the Holy Spirit inside of you. It's because you've never truly been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've never experienced this grace, powerful transformation that I spoke about a second ago. Then the invitation for you today is to trust Christ. It's to trust Him. It's to place your faith in Him. It's to... Right there where you are, say, Jesus, I know that you died on the cross to forgive me of my sin. And by faith, I trust in you. I confess that I'm a sinner. I repent of my sin and I trust in you and ask you to change me. The second part of the invitation is that if you're a Christian here today, you're to fight the deeds of the flesh. You're to mortify the deeds of the sinful flesh. And you may have come in here today with a, with a mask on and kind of a, an air that that really you're doing okay and there's really no sin and temptation in your life, but if that's going on, let me just tell you something, you're spiritually blind. If you don't recognize that there are sins and temptations that are continually gnawing at your heart, that you need to fight, that you need to repent of, that you need to crucify, that you need to, to deal with today, then you need to pray, Holy Spirit, open up my heart and let me see the truth of who I really am. And then thank God for the grace that he's already given you to fight that sin. Whatever it is, the Lord is dealing with you today and you need to trust him or you need to pray and, and just have some encouragement this morning to fight sin better, we want to invite you to do that. After you leave today, if you want to talk to me or one of our other staff members, we invite you to do that or you can 
shoot me a phone call or an email this week and I'll be glad to set up an appointment to talk with you. But whatever it is, if the Holy Spirit is revealing something to you today, don't leave here today without being obedient to Him. Jesus, we thank You so much for the grace of the Lord Jesus. We thank You for what He has done for us and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you leave today, October is the month of Operation Christmas Child, and so there are Operation Christmas Child boxes that are available. We have a short little video we want to show you, and then we will dismiss you. Count of three when children open the shoe boxes, they're so excited. I mean, it's just been incredible. Kids are so excited. Giving them a gift, do it in Jesus' name, and that's what this is all about. Jesus loves you. It's a gospel opportunity. It's the chance for the children to change the entire life. The word of God is spreading. The gospel is advancing. It is impacting children. It is impacting families. It is impacting the world greatly. Thank you for praying. Thank you for giving. God will bless, and God will use your gift to touch the life of a child and to be able to do it in Jesus' name. So thank you. Thank you for being a part of it. God bless each and every one of you. I always love this time because it's always fun to watch people bring these boxes back and I want you to always remember that this is not just a box full of goodies. This is, a, this is a tool to share the gospel with children that you and I probably will never meet. And so we encourage you to take some boxes with you. I think we have one church member that's already taken 15 boxes. So there's a little challenge for some of you if you want to try to eclipse that one. Um, but uh, but uh, they are available out in the foyer going down towards the office. There are several of them. You can come up here and pick them up during the week if you want to as well. Um, there's information on the boxes inside of how to pack it and also all the postage that is, that is for the boxes is already paid for through the harvest offering so you don't have to put anything in for postage. Alan, how many, what's our goal this year on boxes? 300. So we need to get 300 boxes. And I have no doubt that you will, you will find, figure that goal out like you always do. All right, church? Thank you very much for coming today. If you're going to Sunday school, we hope you have an awesome time. And we hope that you have a blessed week.